Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide, that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Nancy Sherman. She's a professor of philosophy at Georgetown University, and she has a new book called Stoic Wisdom, Ancient Lessons for Modern Resilience. So, uh, Nancy, thank you for coming. How are you doing? Good. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, well, tell me a bit about uh, your background. What got you involved in, uh, you know, philosophy and thinking about how people think and learn and you know, interact with each other? I got involved in philosophy way back before I was an undergraduate, wanting to figure out the uh, secret of of what made for a human being. And I stumbled down some, for me, were dead ends. One was anthropology, but it ended up being physical anthropology, bones, uh, which is what they offered at my undergraduate college. Uh, and then I went down psychology's lane, but that at the time was, it, again, uh, I went to Bryn Mawr College and that was uh, mostly running rats. So that didn't particularly interest me. And then I tried political science, but it was mostly, at the time, it was sort of a comparative politics. So I ended up in philosophy, and that's sort of, um, the rest is history, so to speak, um, or philosophy. And I ended up doing a grad, you know, uh, undergraduate, graduate degree, and uh, I've been in the field for decades, thinking about, in particular, ancient philosophy, and by that I mean ancient Greek and Roman philosophy. That was my special, uh, you know, where my degree was, my PhD. And I also worked, uh, worked a lot on issues of emotions and moral psychology and sort of how, in some ways, how we're vulnerable through emotions or, or at least expressed through emotions. And that got me interested at some point in working with the military. Uh, somehow they found me and I ended up for over two, three decades advising the military on issues of moral injury and post-traumatic stress and 
Sure. What, you know, for people that don't understand, I, I found this an interesting concept. What is moral injury and who does it happen to and how? Well, moral injury is a, a kind of identity crisis of a sort. It's a sense in, uh, expressed in emotions uh, that could be guilt, shame, but also resentment, a sense of betrayal that something you did or something that was done to you or something that you witnessed jars in a really profound way with how your conscience works and how you think you uh, ought to be able to um, understand circumstances. So for some, it's a kind of like shattered moral identity. It often, it's been studied most in the military and it's distinguished most varieties or many varieties of post-traumatic stress. So we think of these days, we think of post-traumatic stress or post-traumatic stress disorder. A lot of people like to drop the D. Uh, PTSD or PTS as a, a fear response. You're a conditioned fear response. You're hypervigilant to life threat. And that hypervigilance keeps you alive in a battle zone or a war zone, whether you're civilian or military or you're a rape victim. That said, the on button may not turn off easily. It's very fine-tuned. And so other kinds of stimuli that don't necessarily have to do with the uh, original injury or the original uh, context, but trigger it and get your response going. You hear a thunderclap. Yeah. We know this, right? You hear a thunderclap and, or you see an, it, it, you've been around, uh, you're in Baghdad a lot and there's a lot of IEDs, improvised explosive devices, and they show up on a road that has imperfections. Well, you see bumps in the road in your neighborhood back home in Denver, Boulder, or something like that. And you have the kind of response you would have as if it were really an IED. That's PTS, right? Familiar. Moral okay. injury isn't the conditioned response to fear, but is rather a, a, a conflict of conscience. You've done something that you don't, that, that's maybe required by in war, it may be permissible collateral uh, incident. It may also be something that you didn't do. You forgot. You moved. You moved this way rather than that way, and your buddy was blown up, but you weren't. You gave it a command that you know you can have a peace stop here. We're going to stop the 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 vehicle, uh, and people can get out. And you lose a buddy to a mine that you weren't expecting. And the kind of sense of guilt, so these emotions, the moral emotions of guilt or a sense of failure or a sense that you betrayed someone can just get very extreme, almost suicidal in some cases. Or people do some things to you in that regard. You know, you're the victim of betrayal. Or again, you see stuff up close. Think of the evacuation in Afghanistan. People are watching on the ground, former Marines, current Marines. And they can't do much right now. They can't get their interpreter out. They can't get the women they worked so hard to get into schools out. They feel this horrible sense of betrayal. So these are moral injuries, you know, and they come in all degrees and gradations. Uh, They get suppressed. They get felt. They get explored. And I came to think about them a lot in working with um, military personnel. I see it now. Let's say you're a traffic court judge. And people come in day in, day out, and they lie to you constantly all day long. Or, you know, let's say you're a prostitute for 10 years, or you're in war, or you're a lawyer, and you deal with all these heinous cases. I would think that 
part of the moral injury is that you're a changed person. Maybe your your ability to have relationships and interact with people is is ruined because of all the bad things you've seen over years and years of doing your job. So do you, do you believe that moral injury extends to that or is it more really focused on military applications? Well, it's not just military applications. It's just been studied most or observed most in the, in the place where there are interventions and, and clinical data, you might say, is through the VA and, and the DOD. But the examples you gave are sure context where it can happen. I had mentioned earlier, you're a victim of sexual assault. Um, you mentioned you, you're hardened. I mean, one is you, you're sort of disgusted and hardened. And so you kind of have almost a corruption of character. You started, you know, the uh, things don't matter as much to, to you or, or you're apathetic about them or you think that the world is a quite horrific place, whatever the case you have, it could be disillusionment. So you want, there's ways of, we don't want to talk about all disillusionment in the world as moral injury, but we're talking about a kind of uh, trauma in the severe case that really destabilizes you. And it may lead you to the same kind of place where PTS does. You might self-medicate, you might get really violent, you might resist treatment when you really should talk, you might uh, you know, be perpetually depressed or withdraw and socially isolate and dissociate from your friendships. So all the kinds of things that we know about clinical responses to bad stuff happening, that can happen also as a result of this kind of um, unsettling of what you thought was good and what you thought was right. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. So what happens if I'm in front of a professional that has been morally injured because they've done their job for many years? I would think that it would compromise their ability to do their job too. Like, you know, if I have a soldier who's been on three tours of wherever, and now they're back in battle again, you know, and they've seen horrific things. Are they going to be more likely to go crazy and do something terrible or not fulfill their job properly? Or if I'm in front of a judge again, that's been hardened for 25 years on whatever I'm in front of him for, I'm probably not going to get a fair outcome because he just doesn't care anymore. He's just hardened. Does that happen? Not necessarily. It could be. I mean, also all different kinds of behavioral patterns. Some people, Doctors are really good at what they do because they get hardened a bit. You know, they're not, they don't get squeamish in the surgery room. Um, we're now hearing a lot about COVID fatigue. Now, here's an interesting case, right? Where doc, uh, people in the ICUs are really not what they would like to be, not professional, but they're angry. They're fatigued at people not getting vaccines, for example, and then showing up and having to be intubated. And then a shortage in there in the ICU where they can't even bring someone who has a, I'm not going to say run of the mill, but a non-COVID related heart attack into an ICU because the ICU is flooded out. So, 
he never can. There's no causal chain here where this causes that. I couldn't even begin to say what that is. But yeah, people get hardened by and disenchanted. I mean, and they also do they do their job less well? I don't know. Uh, you know, sometimes it's what you need to, need to do your job well. Well, you know, like during you get wiser. Two, I would think a lot of people actually get wiser by being around the block a bit. What if you're in a situation where you're forced to do things that are against your own morals and ethics? You know, let's say it's like Nazi Germany, and you know they say shoot that person or shoot your family member, and if you don't do it, we'll kill everyone. So you're forced to do different degrees of bad versus terrible things. Like, does that cause moral injury, and what happens to you? Yeah, certainly. That might. People who are in the military um, are are taught. I've, I've taught at the Naval Academy. You're taught to disobey unlawful orders. And, and you know, many people become could become selective conscientious objectors because along the way they think that the cause for which they're fighting is no longer just. Or they run up the chain of command, a protest. You witness Abu, what happened in Abu Ghraib or you witness other incidents of torture, say at Guantanamo or something like that, and you might jeopardize your career, but you nonetheless try to bring to bear the morality of your job. Um, even if if even if in the chain of command, the person who's immediately above you is order, ordering you. I mean, we know from Germany, superior orders defense. There's there isn't a superior orders defense. I was I was told to do it. It's a great cost that you don't. And you're right, it might be your life, but some people take that um, take that um, risk. So in, in Afghanistan right now, women are taking the risk of protesting, though horrible things might happen to them and their family. It's a terrible position to be in, but those are extreme cases. You know, and in the book Stoic Wisdom, I talk about uh, a number of these kinds of incidents, but I also talk about the way in which we are vulnerable, but we try to strengthen our will to be able to hold on to some of our goodness in the most test, in the, in the most trying circumstances. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Let's switch to your latest book about the Stoics. How did you first learn about Stoicism and, you know, what's the focus of the book? Well, Stoicism has been around for a long time. So I mentioned that I, I study ancient philosophy. So I knew, you know, I studied them as a student, but I also came to think about them more seriously when I was teaching at the Naval Academy. And I was sort of on secondment teaching there for a while. And we came to this part in a course on ethics, where we read one of the Stoics named Epictetus. And it was as if all of my midshipmen had just kind of arrived home. This was their philosophy. And same with the officers with whom I taught. And so it was the sense was, wow, this is about suck it up and truck on, which was their version of stoicism with a little s. But as I, you know, as someone who has a background, I have a background also in mental health and thought about the emotions. I really didn't want to be advising a whole generation of sailors to be thinking about uh, just emotion suppression. If that's what they were thinking about, as stoicism, I thought, boy, this is really unhealthy. Um, and so I came to think much harder about stoicism and reread and, 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 and taught a lot of more of the stoic texts. 
And I ended up with a, um, what I think is a much um, more nuanced um, contoured view of stoicism that shines in, in some of the texts. And it isn't just sort of go it alone grit, individualism, self-reliance. Someone like Marcus Aurelius himself, uh, the, the stoic emperor and, uh, and general out in the battlefield in the Danube, he says, if you've ever seen a, uh, a hand and an arm and a leg lying apart from the rest of the trunk of the body. That's what we make of ourselves when we cut ourselves off from each other. So the Stoics really were the first um, serious cosmopolitans. They, they didn't invent the word. It was their predecessor who did, uh, Diogenes the, the Cynic. But they have this idea that we're citizens of the universe and we're all connected they think through our reason and all the manifestations of reason. So, and emotions are also kinds of reasons. They're kinds of beliefs. So they're cognitivists with regard to the emotions. So I came to think pretty hard about stoicism. I wrote a book called Stoic Warriors um, about the blessings and curses of a, a, of a too rigid or harsh view of stoicism. And stoic wisdom was really an attempt to, do a few things, revisit the Stoics, that it wasn't just tough, marble man individualism, that it was really much more interesting, and that it wasn't just tech bro kind of stuff, um, you know, the stuff that Jack Dorsey or, or Ryan Holiday might advocate, mm. or Silicon Jeff, Jeff Bezos maybe even, you know, I get, I get why they're interested in it, because... Good question for you here. I've, you know, again, I don't know everybody, obviously, or even close, but it just seems that men seem to be interested in stoicism a lot more than women. Has, has that been your experience? Well, yeah, and some pretty toxic, horrible sites on subreddit sites, and some so, of I that. Mean, I, like, like I've, you know, like my wife's not really very interested in it, and I've talked to you know like four or five friends, and same thing. Like the guys seem to be interested in stoicism, and you know, the women and the wives of the partners they. They don't for some reason. So I just wonder why. Some of it is a bad view of stoicism. Some of it is that it's manly and that it's about toughing it out. It's athletic discipline for the mind. And it's a a sort of a self-help for uh, optimizing your self-journey. Well, there's some of that and we all want good doses. But if, if you go to the actual sources that... Um, so not just modern Stoics, but ancient Stoics, someone, uh, the founder of Stoicism said it's, uh, Stoicism has no gender because it's based in reason and it's available to all. And another one, Musonius Rufus, not a household name like Seneca or Epictetus or Marcus Aurelius, says that men and women alike should come to my class because girls like boys have an aptitude for virtue because they too have reason. So it happens to be a, a kind of path that some take that that may be in male channels, but it's I don't think it's a fair appropriation. So, you know, maybe statistically that's the case. And, you know, are, are there more entrepreneurs out there in Silicon Valley that are men than women? Probably. Is there more wealth out there in Silicon Valley in the hands of men than women? Probably. Do they have larger, you know, louder megaphones? Probably. So there's an entrepreneurial aspect to the, uh, to certain aspects of modern stoicism. I don't mean to be so cynical, but I think it's, you know, out there and a miss, in my view, a, a misread 
of some of the best parts of Stoicism. Stoicism isn't about being bulletproof, invincible, living forever through some bio life hack. It's, it's really about the fact that we're all vulnerable. We all have the, you know, face the slings and arrows of fortune. I just heard about someone mm. who, whose nephew died three days of COVID in part because the guy was taking steroids, which killed his kidneys and he couldn't, and he was sort of more interested in bodybuilding than he was in looking at any data with regard to the vaccine. And, and he leaves behind three kids. Okay. That's vulnerability writ large. And so we then have to figure out, okay, how do you go on after that? And that's what the Stoics are really best at. Let's try to figure out ways that we can anticipate. They talk about pre-rehearsing the bads. Crap, they have a word problem, language problem. They don't always have great phrases for what they're after, but try to get ahead of the curve by anticipating rather than being blindsided. Yeah, well, I've to- heard of like practicing poverty and I don't yeah. know about, you know, assuming that bad things will happen. Like, so how does Stoicism address that? How, how do you prepare for bad things to happen? Well, Epictetus gives you a, a, a great little exercise that moves from the trifling, the trivial to the serious. You, and it's called premeditate on the bads or the ills that could strike you. Simple one that we all, we, we all know. You have this favorite mug, jug, he calls it. It could break. Think about that a little bit, you know, and prepare yourself for the fact that it could break. Pretty trivial, but it's an exercise. Then move up. This one's one I think about a lot. You're uh, headed for the, the gym, or in my case, I like to swim outdoors. But, you know, and he says the, the public bathhouses, this is Epictetus now writing turn of the first century of the common era. It could it could be really uh, filled with jostlers and pickpockets and gossips so think about that in advance so you're not going to get too pissed off or annoyed as you uh, when you go there okay so it's kind of get in the right mindset change your attitude and then you graduate to the hardest one the mortality of those you love loss says and it's sort of it's premeditate on mori on dying and so a very caustic phrase that's used a lot is I always knew my child was mortal. Well, really, it sounds so unfeeling. But I had a version of this when my mom, you know, lived to a very ripe age, mid 90s, late 90s. She never wanted to talk about death. She was in a nursing home. I was in charge of her care. And so I had to figure out a way to talk about death. So I said, Mom, just remind me, did I sign you up for the immortality plan? Because if I did, it's going to be really expensive. And she laughed gently. And I knew that I got her to think about death. And so we had this little joke and a little game. You know, I would come visit every so often. And I'd say, hey, how's that immortality plan going? She wasn't sick at the time, you know, but it was a way of planting the seed so that when we had to face her death, we would be doing it together in a way that was more palatable, less toxic to her, anticipating the the bads, you might say, and trying to come up with methods for doing it. Why anticipate bad things? What does that do for you? You know, if if you want to comment on the instance with your mom, how did it help? Oh, easily. Let's 
One way is we could be avoiders, Pollyannish, always, you know, hope for the best, but prepare for the worst. And, and the Stoics are into counterfactuals. Think of worst case scenarios. So take about it, take a pandemic. You want to be totally blindsided by a pandemic, or do you want to think about SARS and previous ones and how people quarantine, get the vaccines ready early enough? I mean, what's this idea of quarantine? Should we have thought a little bit? I teach. It took me quite a while to get fully up and going with Zoom in a classroom, but if I had a little bit more prep beforehand, I would have, it would have been a smoother transition. So you don't want, you want to be strategic about the future. You don't, you can't, you don't know what it will be. In the case of death, I'm pretty sure all of us will go there. And the Stoics don't want to traumatize you in advance. I wasn't traumatizing my mother in advance by having a joke or a little dance that we did about this. I was putting, I was allowing her to dwell a bit in the future. So the future didn't come as this total shock. And I think that's a good idea. So the phrase that Cicero uses in thinking about it, he says, we should dwell on the future a bit. So it's like be be strategic planners. That's one of their methods. And I think it's an interesting one. Another one is mental reservation. I'll go for a sale, says uh, Seneca, unless it rains. So you got you have this like clause, the unless clause, if if it doesn't rain, unless it rains. And that's a little bit, you know, like be agile, be nimble, be prepared to change your plans and don't get blindsided by the fact that or fixed, stuck. I got to go for that boat ride. I got to go for that sale and like a two year old and I'll be devastated if I don't. So I think a lot of life is um learning some agility skills and pivoting. And that's what I think in Stoic Wisdom, when I talk about resilience, that's part of what most, I think, psychologists these days think of as resilience, a certain kind of adaptiveness to be agile and not rigid. Have you studied Stoicism very deeply? I, I would guess you have. And like, what, what do you know about it? Or what, did, what have you uncovered maybe that surprised you that you didn't see at first glance that took a lot of introspection to, to discover about it? I wouldn't say it took introspection. I would say that my career is looking at texts. So I study texts and I write about them. And so I guess I would say that I love reading them. I like arguing with them. It's like having someone in your room that you're arguing hard against. And I love teaching texts. So I view, you know, I, I view ancient texts. It's kind of sounds weird to say open books, but things that you, you have in a classroom and you, you teach and you argue about. And so I think one of the biggest uh, insights was that the idea, I mentioned it, that the Stoics were somehow these tough guys, invincible, bulletproof, and do it alone. We like the word grit these days. No, they're really about social connection. They're about the fact that we were in cooperative endeavors and that we our co-workers, a phrase that Marcus Aurelius uses a lot, or co-workers in a, you know, in a, in a larger connected scheme. And I, I think that's idea of social fabric of life and where it matters and how you protect yourself a bit for what you don't want to face is what kind of gets me going. We all 
wake up in the morning and, you know, your kid does something you don't like, or your spouse pisses you off or annoys you, or uh, you get saddled with a job you don't particularly want in your workplace. And these are ways of cushioning the blows a little bit. So you're not totally fluctuating with your emotions in highs and lows and, or, you know, or, or sounding off in ways that don't do you any good or the people around you any good. So what, what was your goal in, in the communication of this latest book? Like what's the one thing that you want people to get amongst or above all else? That resilience is not go it alone grit that we, that we, we, we are sustained and supported by each other. And that's part of destigmatizing mental health. It was there in the ancients and that we should really think that and that strength of will comes in part by kind of monitoring your own biases and impressions, but it also comes from turning to others, you know, in in both local ways, local, local, through local connection, but also more far-flung connections that are sometimes harder to imagine or sustain, but we're kind of citizens in a a big globe. Um, We've seen it in huge ways these past few years that we're like it or not, we're globally connected. And the Stoics are trying to figure out ways to make that global connection healthy and viable. So that's that's well, part what, of what I'm after in the book. Reading texts, yeah. Well, speaking of which, when you read something from 2,000 years ago, does it strike you as amazingly wise after all this time? Or how do you interpret these writings from so long ago? Well, we all are readers of pretty ancient stuff. You know, some people like to read the Bible. Some people read the Koran. Some people read Buddhist sutras. So we're, you know, it would be pretty, pretty nearsighted of us if we only read contemporary stuff or not even that, a Twitter feed as opposed to a, a newspaper article that may have 300 words or 400 words. So, you know, and you can't take... You can't impose modern gender equity on on an ancient group in the way that we understand it, or notions of enslavement in the same way. Uh, there's going to be lots of history and lots of conventions and norms that we just don't buy into, and that we want to distance ourselves from. And that's what a good historian, a good reader of texts, and sort of curator of the text you might say does you, you you read it and you you're critical and you you distill and interpret in the best way possible uh the the wisdom in it so i'm never surprised by the wisdom in the ancients but um i think i think if you're just sort of like a radical modernist and you never and and your your span of understanding the world is the last five minutes maybe you're surprised but no, I think some of the best stuff is is back there. But you, you know, I'm not. You're not reading it to to live your life in the way they did. Hey, I don't have the money. You know, would I want to live under Nero? No. Would I want to be forced? Do I want to live under many regimes? No. Um, would I want Seneca's lot as the as the um, spin doctor for Nero? No. You know, he was forced to commit suicide, but. That is, um, Seneca was at Nero's beh- of the quest. But that said, 
I mean, who can't read some history? You know, if you don't read history, you're doomed to repeat it. You got to read some of the stuff in order to see that some of the cataclysms we go through now were like that. The Romans had had massive pestilence and plagues that wiped out a lot of them. They had massive tyrannical reigns as well. We know about those. And they were really attracted to the glitter and glow of of money and power. And they had to figure out ways of trying to modulate it. And that's part of what stoicism is about. So those are are themes we've got as well. Okay. Well, very good. Well, Nancy, um, can you mention some of the books? You know, let's start with this latest one. Where can people get it? And then, uh, you know, the names of some of the other works you have so people can find out more about what you do. Sure. So Stoic Wisdom. Ancient Lessons for Modern Resilience. You can get it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, your favorite independent bookstore. Another book on Stoicism I wrote was called Stoic Warriors, available in the same places. For those more interested in kind of uh, moral psychology of moral injury after war or untold war. And um, all my books are listed at nancysherman.com under nancysherman.com slash forward slash books. So you can find all of them there, nancysherman.com forward slash books. And I have, I'm on uh, social media as well. You can find me there, Prof Nancy Sherman, Instagram. Well, very good, Nancy. Thank you for coming on the podcast and talking about this stuff. It's, It's rare that it's covered. So thank you. Thank you so much, Richard. A pleasure. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.